everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conversation of Our Generation and the first episode of the New Year. So, Happy New Year to everybody. Um, glad to be talking to you today and I'm sorry that I missed last week. I have been battling a cough and my voice was just not 100% and it still quite isn't, but as you can kind of tell, <laughs> it's got a little bit of a funny sound, but I was just coughing like crazy every fifth word it seemed like and so... <clears throat> I didn't feel like it was going to be quite uh, ready to do a podcast. So thank you for bearing with me and waiting on this conclusion of our series that we've been doing, The Way, the Truth, and the Life. And this will be part four and the final installation of this series. And what I'd like to do is talk to you about how in the last couple of episodes we've discussed how you can come to know things about God, you know, creation, ethics, and so on through human reasoning. And what I'd like to do today is talk about how Revelation brings us to a fuller understanding that we couldn't come to on our own and the value in that and and really what it's done to affect our lives over the last couple hundred years. And I think it's an important thing to talk about. And hopefully this little series is something that we can hold up in the conversation of our generation of really deep diving into an idea. And I'd like to do something more along these lines going forward. I'd like to take these you know, maybe make something more out of this, <laughs> find some way to get some written content that goes along with it. That's extended if you want to dive into these topics in a more refined way um, and have just a better discussion that's, again, continuing to find ways to go deeper than just 140 characters on Twitter or a reply in the Facebook comments and so on. I'd like to find ways to have discussions and go back and forth in a more democratized way, but also in a somewhat like the way you would as a scholar by putting out theses and, you know, testing these and answering each other in a, you know, in a more robust way. And so that's what I'd really like to be start, or what I would really like to start working on. But for today, I'd like to remind you before we hop into everything else that you can find me on conversationforgeneration.com if you do want to leave comments. We've had some good discussion from a couple people on this topic in there. So that's definitely a good place. Facebook has been Having a couple good discussions as well, so go to facebook.com slash conversation for our generation. If you're listening on iTunes or on the website as well, you can get some conversation going there. Or go to Twitter, at con of our gen. You can check out a little bit more there as well. And so, oh, and then lastly, you can find me on iTunes, as I mentioned. If you just search conversation for our generation, you should be able to find me there as well. So, thank you. Uh, for listening today, let's go ahead and hop in to the quote of the week. And this one I think was fitting to wrap it up with a quote from Jesus, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And so this one is a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so much you love one another. And the reason I chose this one, because I think it's important in multiple ways. First of all, it's really a a statement that I have walked in the way, you know, he's, he's giving a new command, which is in Jewish sense, like at this time, you have to understand that that is what God did. Like he is putting this commandment on par with the 10 commandments, which were given by God. So he is saying basically in this statement that as God, this is what I tell you to do almost. I mean, that's really how, uh, how consequential this statement is to the, at least how the Jews of that time would have seen it is he is 
really making a claim as well to divinity in this, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But <clears throat> his commandment is to love one another as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And if you look through the rest of the Gospels, you see how he loved other people. And regardless of whether or not you believe Jesus is God incarnate, I think that that's an important part of what this episode is going to be about. But I think you can at least argue that he lived a very good life and that if you follow the way he lived, new doors are opened up to us. I mean, and so when he says to love as he loved us, he's saying, I'm an example to follow. And if you look at his example, he is a very unorthodox person, especially for the time. And, you know, now we kind of look at some of the teachings that he gave us as, oh yeah, obviously that's true. Obviously you should turn the other cheek. Obviously you should, you know, uh, whatever it is. I mean, obviously the, the, you know, the ideas that asking you shall be given, you know, knocking the door shall be opened to you, you know, go and try things, go and do things and you know, opportunities will arise, basically what that is, right? And because he's not saying that if you just pray, God will give it to you because obviously that's not true. My favorite way I've ever heard this put is a Catholic apologist said that, yeah, God answers all prayers. And like your parents, sometimes he says no. <laughs> but if you go out in the world and you ask and you, you know, doors will be opened. Things will be brought to you if you ask and if you work for things, you know, things come to you. And so he, he continually gives you new ethics on how to live and how to, I don't want to say take advantage of, but how to live most fully in this world and in this life. Because there's certain ways that we are wired that more and more psychologists are finding that these things are true. Like you can't, and you can find, maybe say that he had some ability to understand life hacks and, you know, 21st century psychology in, you know, in 30 AD when he was doing his ministry or 28 AD when he was doing his ministry. But I think it's a lot, you know, just as plausible that he wasn't a psychic, that he was God incarnate. And that's what gives him this insight and truly what would open up this commandment even more that, you know, as God who created the world and who made you in his image and likeness, as that God has loved you, so must you love one another. That's a huge calling. And the more and more we do that, the times that we do do that, we are, we do see that society thrives when we do love one another, when we do not, when we remove our animosity from each other and put aside vengeance and open up to forgiveness and mercy and true justice and charity, especially helping the least among us. We see that cultures thrive when that happens, when there is a sense that there's community and when people do really love their strangers around them, the people in their community, their neighbors, but also those a town over and every, and everybody when you truly will the good of the other and give in charity and do things that show that you love and want the best for another person that you don't even know, then you open up the world and for everybody, everybody, to, everybody benefits from that. And so I think what Jesus does 
uh, or Jesus does this by showing us how to live first off. He, he does this in his ministry and obviously working miracles is one thing, but in his teachings and in his parables and, and how he explains the world and how one should act within it, he really shows us how to live not just a under a code of law, but under a code that can expand throughout time because it'll always be the case that Jesus' teachings work to create a good person, a good family, a good society, a good community, and so on. If if everyone followed what he teaches truly, then we would be far beyond where we are as a, as a culture and as a world. We would, I mean, I think that technology would be far more advanced. I think that the, obviously, there would be a lot less violence and death because of war and crime and so on. I think that there would be much more happy people. You'd have a lot of, I mean, just life would be even better if everyone, but life is pretty amazing for the fact that, so you know, all of Europe who expanded the globe and conquered much of the globe brought this message to people. And you could see that countries, as soon as they hear this, become so much better. Even, I mean, countries that have it hard still (laughs) are still far better off than they were when, before this message of the gospel. And so I think that when he gives us these teachings that are hard to understand and we just have to take some of them a little bit on faith to start, but then once you start doing it, you can see that it makes a lot of sense that it actually works. And I believe that that's because Jesus is God incarnate, which, like I said, has to be taken on faith, although I think there's plenty of support that you know, he is divine, especially if you look at his death and resurrection, both of which are fairly well documented in both Christian sources and non-Christian sources. There's ideas that this has happened. I mean, obviously his death is well recorded. If you deny that, you pretty much deny that Julius Caesar lived <laughs> because we have just almost as many sources on just a single event in Jesus' life, not to mention that he was alive. You know, and then also on his resurrection, if you deny that, then, you know, you deny Socrates trial because there's more evidence actually of Jesus resurrection and better evidence that it, you know, it's not presented in the most flattering and mythological way because he's discovered by women and several other factors that, you know, is recorded by disciples and people who knew his disciples who went to other sources and collected this information. And then also, you know, because really, I mean, you have Plato who recorded Socrates' trial. That's his student. So why should you give that any more credence than what you give, you know, Jesus' students? And so I was, if you look at the historicity of these things, there's pretty good evidence, but that's a, that's another episode. And so, but because of this, idea that he is God incarnate, he's able to reveal essential facts about being and how you act that cannot be known by human reasoning alone. And that's where I think 
this is truly important is we've talked a lot about how you can get to a certain point. We've talked a lot about how you can begin to know God and a little bit about his nature and truth and the order of the universe and of creation of our world and also the moral world, the ethical world and how you can extract principles there as well. But when the logos becomes man and walks among us, he's able to still understand these incredibly important laws of reality and of nature, and he's able to reveal those to us in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be able to get to on our own. And I think that that's an important thing to recognize, that it is... his position as God incarnate that allows him to truly reveal things that can't be known by the natural light of human reason. And I think one of the best examples that we see is the Beatitudes. These are a perfect example of how he he takes ideas that are maybe people who are in a weaker position, people who aren't cherished in a society, and says, no, these are the people who you should look to, right? The humble, the poor of spirit, the poor of spirit, the people who are saying, I, I feel like I need God in my life that are longing for God. The people who are meek, the people who, which means not, you know, they're weak by any means. It means that they are, they wield swords, know how to use them, but keep them sheathed. That's what it means to be meek. It means that you are able to defend yourself, but you don't, go out for vengeance. You don't take offense to everything and, you know, think that you need to be this big macho man. You say, no, if I'm threatened, I can defend myself, right? Even Jesus says, sell all you have and buy two swords because you're going to need them at one point in the gospel. That might be Acts. But in the New Testament, he says, he says that. He says, go and buy swords because to his apostles, because he's like, you're going to need them. (laughs) Bad things are going to come your way, and so you're going to need to be able to defend yourself at times. And so uh, he flips this common understanding so much that what really happens is if you start to live by this, you realize that it opens a door to new ways about how we treat our neighbor. And these things lead to prosperity and all sorts of amazing things for us if we follow them. Because what happens is is when you follow these ideas <clears throat> in his teachings we we see that <clears throat> sorry i'm scrolling through my notes a little bit here but what we see is that as you follow his teachings and you do that we we start to uncover these ideas about ourselves we really this is where science comes from is that there is truth and that we can understand it and so how do we go about understanding the natural world? So where economics comes from is we say, oh, if we have industry with each other, you know, and we share and we have trust within one another, then we can actually build an economic system, right? You These things are actually so much reliant on what Jesus taught us because in reality, there were markets and there was places for trade, but it was always a game of, who can kind of get who that's that's how people looked at economics. They didn't see that if you actually 
engage with someone and not necessarily just share with people and give things away, but if you engage in honest commerce, that you can actually both do better. You can create win-win situations. And I'm sure there's people who figured some of these things out. And obviously Jesus didn't come as John Locke or, or uh, Adam Smith, but there are plenty of ideas that actually allow us to have a long lasting economic system that come from this. And <clears throat> I think that his incarnation, one of the things that is so encouraging about it is that you see that he completes this ethic that so many tried to understand before him, that Aristotle tried to understand, but, and could create a fairly complete ethic, but couldn't find that full picture. You know, Confucius, who looks to the family and finds a way to create an ethic for the family, and he does a great job, but he can't complete the picture, and he can in Christ, right? You see the Holy Family is this fulfilling of what he offers, really. And Buddha as well. You know, this is why Chesterton places uh, figures like Buddha and uh, Confucius at the birth of Christ as a Magi. Like, he said, this G.K. Chesterton in his, I forget exactly which book it was, I was listening to a podcast about him, but recently that reminded me of this, but he, he has two of the Magi, are Buddha and Confucius, to coming to see Christ and seeing, oh, this is what my work was about. This is what I was working on as a wise man. They both were, and they both were able, without revelation and without being God incarnate, able to get pretty far. And they have some misunderstandings, and I think that, especially Buddha, but Confucius, I think, definitely has more reservations about making religious claims. He just says, hey, here's how you should act in society and how to be upright and righteous and he does a good job kind of like aristotle does he they both don't really make claims in their ethics about god in any way or the afterlife whereas buddha somewhat does and and i think that there's and, and that doesn't even mean that confucius necessarily believed <laughs> you know didn't believe in reincarnation which i think is wrong but he i'm not saying that at all he might have i don't fully know that I, uh, the full aspect of his religion, but I do know that his ethical teachings are f just fairly concise and strong. And so it's a beautiful thing to see that you can reconcile and complete these endeavors that were going on before Jesus in his ministry. He, he gives these people the answers that they were longing for. Every person who's trying to build an ethical system before him has their answers. And and so, as Jesus progresses throughout his ministry, he does claim, he makes claims to divinity that are important. And he does this in both action and in word. He forgives sins, which only God was able to do at the time. And so, in doing that, in the setting that he was in at the time, he is claiming to be God by saying that he forgives sins, by forgiving sins. <clears throat> and so... And multiple times throughout the gospel, he's threatened, you know, to be stoned. They pick up stones to, you know, kill him for violating blasphemy laws for, by saying that he is, that say, by saying basically he is God or claiming to be able to do things that only God can do in the Jewish circle. So he does make this claim pretty clearly uh, if you understand the context. And so this claim is important because this is 
really where that idea that he can actually speak on these ideas, that he has an inside, kind of an inside baseball knowledge of the truth that only God can know. And so if he truly is God and he's revealing this to us, then we are able to not just take this ethic and apply it in our lives and reap the benefits of it, but you can say, oh, we can take this and expand upon it, upon this, these ethics and find out more about God. We can understand more about him, right? That, you know, by understanding Jesus and his life as one of the persons of the Trinity and of God, we can say that there's not just certain ways that we should live, but there's more truth that we can understand about God, that there is God, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, that God is three persons in one divine being, one nature. And so what that means then is, you know, we see not that God loves us only, right? Not that there is a creator God who loves us, but that God is love. God is the father, this, you know, this kind of head of the Trinity that from him proceeds the son, this, this logos, this idea of <clears throat> some, something that gives order that is, you know, truth and goodness and all that Jesus is and this loving relationship between the father and the son produces a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which is this, just simply this love between father and son of the Godhead. And, and so you see that this relationship is not just loving, it is love. And I think that that's one of the most important insights that opens up our world to being a better place. That that truth and that understanding of God is what gives us really the ability to progress beyond what, you know, for thousands of years was kind of just war and violence. And I mean, literally, in, uh, I think it's Ecclesiastes where they say, I forget which one it is, in the Old Testament where they say there's a time for war and a time for peace. There literally was a time for war. It was springtime. That's when you went out and did your campaigns because the weather was good and it wasn't too, too hot and people were, you know, dying of heat stroke and it wasn't cold and people were freezing, right? So time for war isn't like we've been attacked and now it's time to go to war to defend ourselves. No, time for war is like, here's where you go plunder other people this time of year. And that's it. <laughs> and so that, that was a common understanding at the time. And that's not necessarily what the Bible's endorsing necessarily, but they're saying that this was just a common understanding at that time when it was written that this is when you go on campaign. And so Jesus by coming reveals so much about God and about his nature. Now we can start to deepen our understanding of <clears throat> the God who created us and the world around us and what all that really means. And that's made possible through Jesus coming and giving us these teachings. And so the other thing that happens is through his teaching, we really do reconcile philosophy and religion. We're able to bring together a religious idea that makes sense, that can be reconciled with the world around us because it is given to us by the creator himself. And it's the, I think that, I forget exactly what the phrase is, but it's really the true, I mean, the they call it the true paganism almost that like there's a lot of paganism 
that happens that, you know, some things are rightly ordered. Like the Greeks, I think, were pretty close to getting a lot of things right. Now, did sometimes it devolve into just like, hey, how can we please this God by having an orgy? Sure, probably not the best idea. But there was a right order to the way that they tried to understand God. And same with Confucius and many other ideas that are still pagan. It's and Jesus coming and giving us the fullness of revelation that really takes, you know, the ability to understand God, understand truth, and understand a lot about how we should live in the world and taking this revelation and saying, here's how you truly fully live in the world. And that's what helps us to reconcile the religious aspect and the philosophical aspect, because it's a religion that doesn't necessarily, or it doesn't conflict with philosophical ideas. It doesn't conflict with reason and rationality, right? As long as you, if you can believe that in other historical documents, you can find truths about the Christian ideas and the Christian claims in both the Gospels and Acts and the New Testament, but also in other documents that are contemporary by Josephus and um, Tacitus, maybe, or Cicero. I forget which one was around the same time, but around, I guess, Tacitus would have been a little bit, he might have been a little bit later, but he would have been around, he would have been writing you know, about the four emperors, he was alive for that year, which would have been around the same time that some of the Gospels were being written. And probably many of, I guess, Paul's epistles would have been before that. So you have a lot of contemporary sources that we believe now that are written, you know, that we can look to and say, hey, this teaches us the truth about the year of the four emperors. Well, there's documents that are you know, just as contemporary to Jesus's life, you know, the Paul's epistles would have happened in the early fifties. And probably many of the gospels were written before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, which was in 73, 74, um, somewhere around there, maybe 71. It was in the early 80s, seventies. And so a lot of this was written not within a generation of Jesus's death. And so there is good reason to understand that this is true. And so I think that what this does, though, is what Jesus, and I've tried to demonstrate this throughout this episode, is that Jesus' teachings help us to deepen our understanding of truth, the truth that leads to scientific advancements that continue to amaze us and help us to live better lives, an ethic that has dramatically decreased violence and increased prosperity and charity through helping us to love our neighbors and really be able to engage in a society and and have faith in each other to engage honestly. And in doing so, it gives us an economic system that we can count on that does provide that prosperity, that allows for charity. And his teachings about truth open the door to the fullness of life. And that's one that we have to wait for the other side of the veil to fully experience, but one that we can begin to experience now. We can see how much better our lives are. I mean, this is like heaven compared to what it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was teaching, right? This is an incredible time we live in, and it's only getting better for most things. I mean, obviously, there's problems that we have in our world that have to be addressed, but I believe that by following these gospel teachings that we can address them and do constantly 
address them and have, despite the fact that we've had setbacks throughout our history, we've always, over time, progressed forward in a good way. And so, and in a way that gives people freedom and liberty, and in a way that gives people, you know, more worldly comfort, but also allows them to actualize their potential more and more and to be the best individual that they can. I mean, now more than ever, you can find opportunities to pursue your dreams and to use your talents to the best of your ability. And that's the truest that it's ever been. And so these, this understanding of the ethic that Jesus gives us is what opens the door to really diving into the truth that's in front of us. I mean, Paul does a great job to start this. And you see it in Thomas Aquinas and many other people in the church who take ethics and who take philosophical thinking and apply it to the Bible and open up new doors and see, you know, people who are literary people who look at the Bible and say, look at how this character in the Old Testament reflects this character and what can we learn about, you know, how to live and why these people are contrasted together in this story because God writes his story through history, through the real happenings. We we have to create these stories. When God creates a story, it happens in real life. And so we can look at that and understand deeper truths about the world around us. And then finally, we get to this fullness of life. And this is the most beautiful part, which is that in this gospel teaching, there is a fullness of life that awaits us on the other side. There is, you know, eternal life that with God, which is the best thing you could possibly imagine times infinity. <laughs> like you can't even imagine how great it'll be. And neither can I just saying <laughs> no one can. And, and so it's just a beautiful thing that Jesus opens the door to and gives us insight into that we would never have without him coming, becoming incarnate and giving us these teachings. And so if you look at what he did and how he completed this search for meaning and this search for the right ethic, the fullness of truth and the fullness of life, the fullness of how we should live in the world, he completes that in a way that is so much more fulfilling than simply a code of ethics that is in a book. It's really more just, it's really alive and vibrant. And that's because it is given to us by the logos, the creator of the co-creator of the universe and the logic that really the universe runs by. That's who gave us this code. And that's why it's so amazing. So, Thank you for listening to this episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. Hopefully you enjoyed this series. Hopefully you enjoyed the wrap-up. And I, if you like this kind of four-part series or multi-part series, let me know because I'd like to do more deep dives like this into ideas, not necessarily religious ones, maybe philosophical ideas, maybe economics, um, history, some other things that we can look at. I, I've been thinking about maybe even some more personal and pragmatic things uh, because I think that that's also very necessary as the conversation for a generation but if you like this just let me know because I'd like to really be able to talk more and in depth on different ideas and I think this was a very good exploration of this idea for me that I've been really kicking around 
in my head for a while now, and it's really nice to get it out there. And so thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Definitely leave comments, replies on the blog, conversationforgeneration.com, or on facebook.com slash conversationforgeneration, Twitter at conofourgen. Go to those places and start conversations there with others. Share this with people that you know. You know, tell them if you haven't listened to the other parts of this, definitely go to iTunes, find my uh, podcast there at Conversation for Our Generation, and listen to parts one through three. I think that you get a lot more of a sense of why this concluded here on part four if you listen to those first three parts, and you'll have a better understanding of what it is that I was talking about throughout this episode. But thank you for listening to the Conversation for Our Generation. Let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next week.